0: If you need help getting Social Security disability benefits, then this podcast is for you. Give me 15 minutes and I'll pull back the curtain on disability and reveal the secrets to winning I've learned over the past 25 plus years. Hi, I'm Jonathan Ginsberg and I'm a practicing Social Security disability lawyer. I want to help deserving claimants just like you win the benefits you deserve and not one penny less. Now, if you already know you need help today, go to ssdanswers.com for a free and confidential evaluation of your case. It takes just two minutes. That's ssdanswers.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, let's start the show. Recently, I had the opportunity to interview attorney Brian Konoski Brian is an attorney whose practice focuses on post-hearing appeals, both to the Appeals Council and to Federal District Court. We can all learn a great deal about winning social security disability claims from Brian. Every day he reads unfavorable hearing decisions and identifies mistakes that can support a successful appeal. One theme you're going to hear over and over and over in our conversation, and I've broken this conversation down into three separate episodes of the podcast, is that social security disability, the system, is designed to make it extremely difficult for you to win benefits. I often hear clients say things like, you know, I paid taxes into the system for years and now that I need help, why is Social Security making it so difficult to get my money out? Well, here's the answer. Congress did not set aside your tax dollars to pay you Social Security disability or retirement benefits. They've already spent that money. So every dollar that they can save by delaying or avoiding paying you, they can spend on projects that win them votes. Paying disability benefits to a struggling family in any town America does not win congressional elections, but building an unneeded post office and creating jobs for construction workers and postal employees does. Fortunately, attorneys like Brian Konosky help you and attorneys like me even the playing field. In part one of our interview, Brian speaks about some of the most common errors he sees in hearing decisions. These include things like leaving the record open for a set amount of time for updated medical records, but then the judge issues a decision before that time runs out, or when a judge cherry-picks activity limitations from a medical source statement but leaves out other very important limitations. I hope that you'll find my conversation with Brian as enlightening and informative as I did. Good morning or afternoon, everybody. This is Jonathan Ginsburg, and I've got with me uh, attorney Brian Kanosky. Um, Brian uh, is an attorney who does a lot of appellate work, uh, which is different than the hearing work that I typically do. So I wanted to ask him some questions about what he does and some of the things he looks for in cases and some of the things he sees in the cases he reviews. So, Brian, welcome uh, to the podcast.
1: Thanks, John. I really appreciate uh, the invitation.
0: You got it. Well, first, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, again, the type of work you do is a little unique in the social security disability world. Um, how did you, what's your background? How did you get into disability appeals work?
1: So, um, right, we do, at this point, we do federal litigation, federal appeals. It's pretty much all we do. Um, I got involved in social security. I mean, I didn't do social security my whole career, but back in about 2014, um, we got into uh Social Security work at the administrative level, um, which makes sense. We started the administrative and, you know, continue there. And, and eventually over time, we we saw that there was a need for litigation at the federal level because ALJs were denying more and more cases. Appeals Council wasn't doing anything about it. And we saw that there was a need and we wanted to um, use our experience and background and, and try to shift from the administrative work into the federal appeals, and and then we eventually became uh, exclusively uh, federal litigation.
0: Okay, and I think for those who don't know, I mean, Social Security Disability the way I do it, I pretty much work at the administrative level, meaning that I handle cases at initial recon and then the hearing. But once you get beyond the hearing, it's sort of a different universe. you are not really dealing with facts as much as legal matters. So, um, you know, attorneys, again, like me, typically will refer out that kind of work because again, you don't want to play in a sandbox you're not comfortable with. So that's really where, where Brian works. And uh, again, he's going to tell us a little bit more about uh, how that all works. So let's start with kind of an overall background of sort of the general levels of appeals. I mentioned somebody files an application for disability, that's called the initial application. They get turned down. They file an appeal called a request for reconsideration. They get turned, it goes back to the same folks who denied them originally at the state level. And then, if they are denied reconsideration, they request a hearing, go in front of an administrative law judge, which is, is what I do. And then, uh, after that, it goes to the appeals council. So, tell me a little bit about just overall structure of the appeals council, what it is, how it works, and then federal court. So,
1: the appeals council level is is still the administrative level, right? You have the ALJs who decide the case, they're at the administrative level, um, which is where the hearing is held. And the Appeals Council is a branch also of the administrative level of the Social Security Administration. And they review the decisions by the ALJ, also pretty much similar to federal in that they're looking for um, some legal error. They're looking uh, for um, errors of, of, of the rules, failure to follow the rules, um, but they're doing so at the administrative level. So they kind of look at it a little bit differently than than the federal court sometimes. Um, so there are, I guess, some, some nuances on how it's actually handled, but it's very similar. So once you get done at the appeals council level, which you have to, you have to exhaust all levels of appeals straight to appeals council before you're given the right to bring an action to federal court. But once you've exhausted all levels of, of appeal at the administrative level, then you have the uh, 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 the ability, the right to then pursue it at federal level if you have a strong enough case to go there. Of course.
0: Now I was just going to ask you. I mean, obviously you said that it's very similar. Is there any significant difference between the a- AC, the Appeals Council, and federal district court?
1: More, more well, there's a couple of significant differences. One, at the Appeals Council level, sometimes you could submit additional evidence if you have good cause for not filing that evidence with the hearing office. At the federal level. You're not going to be submitting any evidence. It's very, very rare. A very rare exceptions to that rule. Um, I could say that in, in many hundreds of filed uh, uh, federal appeals, it's, uh, I have not. So at the appeals council, it's different. Sometimes you do file it. Um, and I also find that at the appeals council level, they're they're not as as diligent in finding issues to remand on. So sometimes you can raise the same issue with appeals counsel that you're raising at the federal court level, and appeals counsel won't remand it. But you get the federal court, and now they're looking at the case law, and they're looking at the regulations, and they're looking at everything with a fine-tooth comb as compared to the appeals counsel, and and you will get a better review at the federal level. Sometimes I find that appeals counsel, they'll just rubber stamp an ALJ's denial and 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 just you know affirm that, and really pay no mind to the real issues at hand. Um, And I think that's a pretty big difference,
0: right? And one of the things you said before is that sometimes the appeals council doesn't do that much of a diligent review. I mean, typically, when I see appeals council decisions is one judge. Is it a panel of judges? Um, How does how is the appeals council
1: structured? Appeals council typically it's typically one judge. Uh, It's the federal. Court also one judge unless you get to the circuit, then sometimes it's a three judge panel. Um, But it it just my experience is that once an ALJ denies it, it's very rare for appeals counsel to turn it around. Maybe ten percent of cases, give or take a little bit less, a little bit more. Um, It's a far different uh, ball game. They don't really seem to put the effort into finding reasons to remand. But you know, from time to time they do remand. So I can't say it never happens, but it's. It's a, it's a tough place to be. Um, and sometimes you just have to go to federal court. And and really, in my view, uh, claimants shouldn't give up, you know, through the process. Sometimes cases do get remanded, people win, even though they've been denied through all levels of appeal. Um, so you, you should push back against appeals counsel sometimes.
0: Okay. And is the appeals counsel, I know you could do that as of right, is in, in federal court, is that something where they have to agree to take the case? Or, do you, or are they going to take every single case that um, somebody would appeal from the appeals counsel? Uh, affirmation of the uh, ALJ decision?
1: Well, I mean, you have the the uh, ability to appeal as a matter of right to appeals counsel for sure from the ALJ level. Um, and my view is that uh, in probably in a large majority of cases, again, it's, it's probably a strategic decision made between the client and the individual lawyer whether to go to appeals counsel. My view is probably that most should go to appeals counsel. And then probably at that point, my view is that all or most should probably be evaluated for federal appeal as well. It doesn't mean that all cases will wind up at federal level because maybe there's not enough of a legal issue to bring. But but I think that every case should be at least considered for every level of review and that in conjunction with your attorney, you should come to a, to a, a, a reasonable decision on what is in your best interest. Um, but my view, my view is that probably all cases should be considered for each level of appeal. Okay.
0: And you talked a little bit about um, new evidence. And I think what you said was that at the appeals council, sometimes you can get new evidence in, but generally you cannot at the um, at the federal district court. So, again, sometimes, um, you know, if somebody, let's say, has a, a an attorney that's brand new at it or they do a pro se and they've left out a bunch of things. Would that be grounds to get new evidence in at the Appeals Council? is it have to be evidence that existed but was not there? I, mean, is, I don't know if there's any particular rules on that, but what, when would new evidence be appropriate at the Appeals Council?
1: There has to be good cause, right? So um, let's say a situation is that you, you believe there's evidence out there, you couldn't get your hands on it because the medical office was closed, you couldn't reach the doctor, they weren't really responding, then you were able to get it. Um, <clears throat> maybe somebody was sick or somebody was ill or something like that, but Certainly, the um, asking for appeals counsel to accept and review something because your lawyer wasn't diligent or you acting as a pro se litigant were not diligent or you didn't get around to it or you didn't even know to get it, that's really not going to cut, cut it. It's not going to carry the day. So it's, it's really a, a very um, big reason why anybody who's pursuing a disability case needs to find a really good lawyer from the outset. Um, and and really needs to do the homework and and select carefully because the lawyer that you hire at the administrative level can make a world of difference in the outcome of your case. Um, You don't want somebody that's not going to know what to do and may make a mistake. You're not going to be able to fix it at Appeals counsel. You're going to already be too late in the game on that.
0: Don't know where to begin? Get my free Secrets to Getting Approved Survival Kit. Inside the kit, I discuss such things as how do you know if you have a case? What to do if you're denied? How to avoid common mistakes? And my ever popular, how to avoid trick questions from the judge. Subscribing is free and easy. Just visit ssdanswers.com and look for the survival kit for instant access. Remember, time is eroding your position every day. Don't delay, act now. That's ssdanswers.com for your free survival kit. Got it. Um, now, I know that a district court it depends on where you live. So uh, do you, first of all, do you do cases um, all over the country? Are you limited to a particular jurisdiction?
1: Um, no, we do them all across the country. Um, so we are in probably the large majority of districts at this point. There's probably a few states we may not be in um, but the state in which you live is what controls where you can file in federal court. So, you know, if, if somebody's living in one state, let's say they're they're living in in Georgia today, um, and you litigate the hearing in Georgia, and then you file for appeals counsel. While the appeals counsel case is pending, the client moves to Nebraska. Um, it, when it comes time to file at federal court, assuming there's a case and the case proceeds. Um, yeah, they're, they're going to have to file in Nebraska. So that's that's where it's your, your home residence uh, that controls where you're filing. And that can and make a difference. I was going to say, because I mean, this really comes down to the different circuits, the
0: federal circuits. Um, and is there a, a substantive difference between the months of circuits as far as the case law and the rules in, in Social Security, or is it pretty similar?
1: On its face, they're the same. But in practice on how they're applied, it's sometimes different. Um, right. So uh, you have some jurisdictions are a little bit more lenient than others. So on the same issue, you might be able to win in one jurisdiction, but not the other. Um, also, some jurisdictions treat things a little differently, like as just a, an example, if somebody has some mental limitations, but they're not extreme, but they're a little bit in an a, ALJ classifies them as mild. Some jurisdictions hold that mild mental limitations don't have to be in the RFC, the residual functional capacity. It doesn't really impact whether you can work. And other districts say that it does impact whether you can work. And the, and the ALJ really needs to explain um, whether mild mental limitations are going to be in that residual functional capacity, whether they impact your work or whether they don't. And it has to be a much more thorough analysis. Bottom line is that where you live actually matters. Uh, when it comes to federal court so the rules look the same on paper but they're applied sometimes a little bit differently which is quite surprising you would think courts across the country would treat it all the same but
0: but it's not 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 at all and and just for those who don't know what brian was 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 referring to with with residual functional capacity at the end of a disability hearing before after testimony the judge will typically have a vocational witness and the judge will pose a series of hypothetical questions and will set out what they call residual functional capacity what someone's capacity for work might be and within that hypothetical there'll be very specific limitations so I think Brian tell me if I'm, I'm wrong what you're saying is that um, depending on the way those questions are worded um, that may make a difference as to how the judge decides it and if the judge words it incorrectly or doesn't get doesn't explain um his or her reasoning in the decision that could be grounds for appeal is that what am I seeing that correctly Okay. Um, all right. Tell me. Let's get into the more of the, the substantive, substantive type of thing. Um, what type of mistakes do you see that would lead to a remand? And actually, before I get to that, um, remedies at um, the appeals council and district court. These are going to be typically a remand back to the judge, but it could be an outright reversal and payment of the case. Is it mostly? I assume it's mostly remand.
1: 99.9% of the time it's a remand They'll go back to the um attorney that was handling the case at the administrative level to try to to win the case at that point after the remand right and, and
0: you know it's always struck me as being odd it goes back to the same judge who denied the case um and of course you know as as we all know the um you know the, the variations among uh, the approval rates and judges can really vary quite quite a bit. Um, you know, there's some judges that approve 20% of cases and others that approve 65%, to some degree, it's kind of a lottery as to who you get, but it goes back to the same judge. Uh, first of all, why is that? Is there any particular reason why they send it back to the same judge or just tradition or is, there, is that codified someplace?
1: In, in, in my view, it should always go to another judge. I think, think so too. Right. I think it's just the courts aren't going to tell the administration how to, you know, run their you know, run the administration. I, from time to time, they'll say switch switch judges. When they think that there's been an abuse or the judge keeps committing errors, they will. But it's it's rare. They I think they just let the Social Security Administration decide which judge gets it, and it usually goes back to the same judge.
0: Yeah. I had a case once where um, the case got remitted from federal court, and the judge, who has a very low approval rate, he approved the case but he wrote a footnote, I kid you not, it was a full page long, basically saying he's only doing this because the federal court is mandating that he do it, that he does not believe the claimant, he doesn't want to do it, but he's doing it anyway. I, I thought that was kind of funny, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it is kind of odd to me that it goes back to, this, to the same judge. And again, my experience has been that um, when a judge gets a remand, especially back from federal court, you know, the inc- the implication is this is a case that probably needs to go the other way. Not always, judges don't always pick up on that, but that that seems to be kind of the uh, uh, what I see most of the time. Because again, it can be a um, it can be a lot of work and a lot of time um, to only go back to the judge to have them deny it again. Um, but you know, again, that's that's the that's the world we live in. Um, what type of mistakes, what type of errors in, in decisions that you see would be most appropriate for a remand? What are some of the mistakes that judges make?
1: Judges make all sorts of mistakes. You, you'd be surprised. They make mistakes from failing to follow a rule. I've seen the judges um, grant an extension of time to give medical records and then choose to close out the case without even informing anybody they're closing out the case. That you know, There's any number of reasons. Judges mess up for so many reasons. But there are, I guess, some more common issues that come up, and some of them are Uh, improper evaluation of medical expert opinions Um, As part of the regulations and ALJ needs to determine whether or not the medical expert opinion is supported by their analysis somehow or their evaluation of the claimant or consistent with other medical records. And sometimes the ALJ won't even explain how it was supported by the the doctor's um, evaluation or it's not, or they don't explain how it's consistent. Or they will provide really bare bones analysis. So a lot of it has to do with uh, evaluation of the medical opinions. Um, sometimes the judge will find medical opinions to be persuasive. Say, okay, I, I agree with this doctor. This doctor makes sense, and I agree. And the doctor will provide certain functional limitations, whether they're physical or mental. And then the ALJ won't include it in that residual functional capacity. Um, and and so the so it won't include. So you don't know how it's being factored in that limitations being factored in with respect to whether the claimant can work. The judge just ignores it. Sometimes they come up with certain limitations in that residual functional capacity. And you have no idea how they reach that conclusion. Right. As a hypothetical example, sometimes they find that certain claimants are, you know, need time off task for whatever reason, whether it's pain, using the restroom um, or they can't concentrate long enough any number of things. And, and then I'll put in the RFC, the claimant must be off task 9% of the work day Well, that's quite interesting because sometimes the vocational expert will testify claimant is, is not employable beyond 10% or 10% or greater. So the ALJ is picking 9% out of thin air, based on what? So there's any number of reasons. Um, and and you have to take a look at it. It could be mental limitations, mild mental limitations that are not properly included. They love to ignore mild mental limitations and think that it has no impact when, in fact, it does have an impact. It impacts your ability to concentrate it and impacts your ability to interact with people in the workplace. But the, the list, it, it's really a laundry list of, of any number of reasons that an ALJ can mess up a decision and, and remand is required. And trust me, they, they make a lot of mistakes.
0: They make a lot of mistakes. And when you look at a decision, does it sort of jump out at you um, that this is a a mistake or do you have to look at the full record? How how do you kind of know that this is a case that would be um, appropriate for a remand?
1: So I I take a look at, you can, you could do it two ways, right? So different attorneys may take a look at it differently. Um, You can, some attorneys may say, I'm going to look at the entirety of the record, which is very, very time consuming. Um, My view is that you can find errors within the four corners of the ALJ's decision. Usually the, the, the errors will jump right out at you just, just on the decision itself. Sometimes then you'll see the error, and then you'll look to the record to confirm that it's an error. Like sometimes the judges conceal the errors. So they'll talk about a medical opinion, and they'll say the, the medical opinion is persuasive because it's supported by and consistent with the record. And that's it. They won't have anything else. So you don't know what the doctor actually opined to. You don't know if the doctor said what limitations were there. You don't know what the limitations were that were assessed. Now you have to take a look at the record, right? Because now you're taking a look to see, okay, the judge found this doctor persuasive. What were the limitations that were assessed? And were they in that residual functional capacity? Did it, should it have impacted this person's ability to work? And when you take a look, you actually find that sometimes they don't include it in the decision, kind of brush stroking over it. And yet there's all sorts of limitations that just didn't make it into the decision. So it's kind of like a combination. I would say, 90% 90% of the time you can make a decision on the ALJ decision alone, and then you have like a 10% of cases where you need something more, something in the record, something in the medical opinion, something in the VE testimony, vocational expert, something.
0: Yeah, and well, I've seen decisions where a judge will cite the, what the doctor said, but you know, we'll take one third or, or 20% of what the doctor said and then leave out The other 80%, you know, that includes a lot more limitations and kind of cherry picks it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I definitely have seen that, that happen before. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Subscribe to this podcast for regular updates at iTunes, Google play stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this podcast useful, then please give me a five-star review because it helps others see the value of my information. Thank you in advance. For a 100% free and confidential evaluation of your case, visit ssdanswers.com. That's ssdanswers.com. Don't delay, act now.